It's October 30th, 2011, and this is The Candid Frame. The stories that I love hearing as a result of doing this show are those that revolve around people making the choice to go out and do what they love. They don't wait for permission or for someone else to to provide them the opportunity. They make it happen for themselves, and as a result of that passion and that commitment to themselves, things start to happen. Michael Freeman is one such person. And he's a photographer who has enjoyed decades of success as an editorial and commercial photographer, as well as a prolific author. His books, which include The Photographer's Eye and The Photographer's Vision, are books that not only teach you the nuts and bolts about photography, but also help encourage the way you see, which is the greatest gift any photographer can give another. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Michael Freeman. Well, Michael, welcome to the Candid Frame. Uh, I'm sorry that I had uh, I missed you while you were down here in Los Angeles, but uh, through the magic of Skype and the internet, we're able to to talk finally. So, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here in the ether somewhere. <laughs> I'm in Pennsylvania, and you're in uh, LA. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh-huh. What's What's fascinating is that I've been seeing your name and your images for years because you're one of the most probably prolific authors on photography out there. Um, even if people may not immediately know your name, they more than likely have seen, seen your books um, as part of um, just visiting a local bookstore or camera store. Talk about how writing has ended up informing what you do with, with a camera, because I think it's fairly rare that uh, a photographer has the ability to, to write and vice versa. Yes, I mean, I I do enjoy writing, um, and I found myself a- able to do so. So uh, it started with a publisher in Britain saying, um, "Well, you can write. Why don't you write a book for us on on photography?" Actually, I tell a lie. The first book, and I don't normally say this because it sounds completely mad. Um, the first book was called "The Space Traveler's Handbook." Hmm. Which, yes, a little, a little unusual. And the, re- the reason was that um, this is going back a long time into the uh, late 70s, pre-digital. And one of the things that I did, and I no longer do, but I'd, I'd seem to have developed a, a knack for it in those days, was doing in-camera special effects. And there was a considerable demand for uh, imagery, you know, that would normally have been illustrated, but people like the look of uh, of photography. And I'd done, I can't remember who for, oh yeah, it was some book covers for Pan Books, uh, sort of the equivalent of Ballantine books here, um, of space-related themes. So uh, the publisher said, well, we, we have this mad idea for a book that would, 
you know, about kind of space travel, but written as if it were a um, an actual thing. So they said, try just try writing it. You know, you've got the pictures, and also at the same time, I'd just completed this book for Abrams on the National Air and Space Museum, which was recently opened, and a huge book, and it took weeks of photography. So between sort of models and things that look like 2001 and some real equipment, I had all these pictures and I did it. So it was the second book. They said, well, Michael, you can clearly write and we want to do a book on photography. So that started my evening job. Mm. Well, tell us more about your your day job because you have worked for um, a variety of different clients, both editorial, commercial. You also teach photography. Um, But even before we get that, tell us about your beginnings as a photographer. Did you start discovering photography in your youth or did it come later in life? What and what and what made you believe that you could actually make a living and lead a life using the camera? Yes, I was a late developer in the sense that I was late coming to the idea that I I could actually um, make a living from photography because I I was always interested in photography, but it, it actually started quite slowly. And I I went through a very formal education in uh, in England, and the school I was at they they really pushed us all to they wanted basically people to get into Oxford and Cambridge because that way you know they they had a better record for attracting parents. So I studied geography at Oxford, which was a great three years. It was fantastic, uh, and geography was not a very um, onerous thing to do. In fact, people who played rugby generally, you know, did geography. I didn't play rugby, but at the end of university, I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I, because I'd been through this rather formal process, nobody was encouraging me, I mean, far from it, to do such a thing as, uh, as photography. So I went into advertising. And these were unusual days from from a modern perspective, because there was full employment. You could have just about any job you wanted. And it got even more peculiar. I worked for a big agency in central London, an American agency, actually. And it was fun. I mean, you know, this was swinging London in those days, and it was, it was good. But after a few years, two things happened. One, I sort of rather bored with doing pretty much the same thing for big clients like Procter and Gamble. And the photography thing had been rising and rising. And I then did something which is totally impossible today. I I'd bought some secondhand cameras and I and I thought, you know, I really want to go away and do something and travel somewhere interesting. I suppose people have gap years now, but we didn't then. And I persuaded the agency, if you can believe this, to give me a two and a half month sabbatical. That meant they paid. Mm. And I went up the Amazon, which you know, seems a, a reasonable thing to do. But in those days, I mean, there wasn't Lonely Planet and there wasn't much long haul tourism. So it was very much do it yourself. And I pretended for that time that I was, I don't know, somewhere between a travel writer and a photographer. I, I just sort of uh, just to keep myself you know I, I decided I'd, I'd pretend to be and the, the whole story goes on too too long from that but I, I came back the agency thought I'd get it out of my system 
and they were very nice. But I then tried to do some things with the photographs. Here I had all these pictures, and it's kind of innocent if you if you don't know the business. And I called the Brazilian embassy and said, you know, well, I got these pictures, met the cultural attaché. He said, oh, I like these. Let's have an exhibition. And he said, we'll invite some, you know, people. And so there was an exhibition. That was good. They invited uh, some magazine picture editors. And Time Life was setting up London Edit at that point, the a books division in London. And they said, well, we're doing a, you know, we're doing a series of, of books on the world's wild places. Um, can we borrow, borrow your pictures? So I said, yeah, fine. Time went by, a few months actually, and I'd forgotten about it. And I got a call at work from the picture editor saying, would you like to come in and see what we're doing with your pictures? So, sure. After work, I went to the Time Life offices. And I had, it was the cover, uh, chapter openers, double page spreads. So I thought, wow. Oh. So I went home on the bus that evening and I thought, that's probably the best incentive I'll ever get. <laughs> so I resigned the next day, which may seem pretty ungrateful. Um, it was, but, but actually, it was a different atmosphere then. And the agency were lovely. They gave me a leaving present of two weeks commercial work for a client. You, you can hardly believe this kind of thing happening nowadays, yeah. of course not. It was a different world, truly. It, it's fascinating because I've talked to a couple of people and and with few exceptions, it seems like the people who make the choice to go out and and do what you did and say, I'm not going to wait until someone gives me an a dream assignment. I'm just going to go out there and create it for myself, go produce the work, and then put it out there. And then through luck, through chance, through, you know, you know, the gods smiling down, something happens as a result of them making that choice. And it seems like it's a, has a domino effect that they go out there, they give themselves the assignment, they create the images, they come back, they start sharing it and putting it out there. And as a result, it seems like this forward momentum starts happening and opportunities like, like yours, come come out as a result in ways that you could never really pre-plan but it no. just takes no. that you know I, I love hearing stories like yours because it just it, it just reinforces the idea of the importance of not waiting for someone else to give you permission to just go out there and, and do it absolutely could not agree more i mean if if there's a lesson to be learned it's that you you really have to go out and do things yourself no point sitting around um I mean, it's too competitive. And it was competitive then, actually. So we all need clients of one kind or another, people to sponsor our work. And these people, the good people, they, they're impressed when they see things, somebody doing something with some energy, some originality, um, because they see too many people who are just doing the same thing, you know, or, or following the same path. How do you deal with the fact that at at the time you were a fairly newbie to the whole photo industry? I mean, there's there's a lot to to have to learn, not just in terms of making 
great pictures that satisfy the needs of the clients, but the whole business end, the whole marketing end, I mean, you just dove right into it. So how did you negotiate those waters and still be able to come up for air? Well, I didn't even know they were there, actually. <laughs> the water was deeper than, than I'd imagined, but I was only floating on the top anyway. I wasn't going diving at that point. I reckoned, I mean, my father was worried about this, and, you know, the agency, you know, we were, they were nice people. I remember the chairman who was uh, American, you know, he was, he took me into his office and kind of gave me a fatherly talk, you know, said, I hope you're doing the right thing, etc. Anyway, I was young. So I didn't have too many needs. And I reckon I could work in a bar in the evening if I needed to. Well, it never came to that. And the great thing about not having any work or not having a job is you've got 24 hours a day minus what you need to sleep to go and make things and go and see people and get work. So it was a mixture between I would take pictures and then go and see people. And it was easier then I think to see people and also uh, London has always had a, a sort of big editorial community magazines books book packages and in those days they were all pretty much in the same place in in the, the downtown area and I of course I'd picked up quite a number of things from working in advertising the logistics, the preparation, the need to be reliable. The fact that actually if you took a competent photograph and you were reliable and cheerful, you'd get more work, <laughs> tell the truth. So I just worked at it. And, and of course, I had Time Life, Time Life Books who'd kind of started me off. And, and they had work. So I'd get jobs from them. And I worked my way up that particular ladder because they they started with this series called The World's Wild Places, and the first volume was The Amazon, so that, that was the beginning. But they then went on to other series of books, and I'd do sort of one-day jobs for them, or shots here and there, just higgledy-piggledy, whatever was needed. But the great ambition, once they really got going, and in particular first with the Great Cities series, was to get a book, one of those books, because they'd when they started great cities then they were looking only at magnum and a few other really top name photographers like pete turner jay maysell i think jay did the first book actually on jerusalem so cracking what was essentially this magnum shell was that wasn't easy at all you know because even though i knew everyone i wasn't considered that level until they had a problem with the Athens book, which was that the, the, the assigned Magnum photographer hadn't really brought in all that they'd needed. And they were, this was a continuity series, so you know there were deadlines. So they said, look, go for two weeks and do this. And the art director gave me a briefing. I said, just get what you can. Here's a, long, here's a, a list of all the stuff we need. Get whatever you can. And I worked hard at it, came back. And they said, great, go again. So I went a second time and, and had half the book. So that was good. And then I had half of a book in the next series, which was on uh, ethnic minorities, half a book on the Patan. And the reason there was that the first assignment had been given to a woman photographer because the problem 
there with the Patan. Here we were on the northwest frontier province, um, an area pretty well in the news now. Um, and it was still, it was okay, but it was, you know, I had to be careful then. I mean, it was impossible for a man to even go near a Patan woman. And even the houses, for example, being the domain of the woman, a strange man could not enter a house. Whether there was a woman there or not, didn't matter. So the other photographer, Toby Molinar, did the women's bit, but couldn't really do the men's bit because she was a woman. They, mm -hmm. they wouldn't take her seriously. So I went out and, and did that. And that was great. Very interesting. Amazing people, actually. And after that, I got my own full book, which was on the Akka. Um, I keep, keep wanting to say hill tribe, but we're not allowed to say tribes anymore. But in those days, they were called tribes. In, on the Thai-Burmese border. And that was, that was fantastic. Three-month assignment. And expenses were not an issue. Yeah. When people think about travel photography, at least when, I, when I've judged contests for travel photography, more often than not, I just get pictures of buildings and architecture. But a real mm. travel photographer is shooting much more than that. And you, you kind of suggest that in, in, in your answer to the previous question. But talk about how you sort of developed a sensibility in terms of what you needed to capture in order to tell the full story of one of these destinations. Was it largely as a result of the fact that some of it was born out of a commercial job where so they were saying that they expected certain images from you? Or was it something else that helped sort of refine your eye for what you needed to create in order to tell the full breadth of what you were experiencing? Well, I, I'd first say that it sounds like splitting hairs, but I'd, I wouldn't call myself a travel photographer, meaning that travel is the core of what I do. I, I, it does sound a little bit pretentious, but I, I would say I travel to take photographs. So it's the assignment that comes first. Now, I happen to like travel and, and, and I'm suited to it. I mean, long-term long, long -term travel. I'm perfectly comfortable, you know, away and, and if I can... It doesn't have to be that comfortable either. But it's a, in a way, it's a, it's a, it's a journalistic sense. Uh, I'm not talking about spot news, but feature journalistic sense. And I suppose I had some feeling for it in the first place, but I completely understood what I learned from Time Life. And that then extended to my work for the Smithsonian because... The Smithsonian Magazine in the early 70s was set up by Ed Thompson, the great editor of, of Life Magazine, and other Life staffers. So my career in editorial photography was really informed by the, the Life, Time Life principle of doing things, which is essentially, here's the story, go away, come back when you've got the pictures, and don't bother us too much which is quite different from other publications who would sort of micro, tend to micromanage what you were doing. Remember also that I, you know, I, I studied geography, which I could never see as being really very useful, but in fact it's been amazingly <laughs> useful because if you take geography, it's not a, it's a conglomeration of subjects. We learned all kinds of things which added up to the geography course. 
but it was always about curiosity and understanding the connections between land and people. And also an important part of that course was what was essentially a diploma course in anthropology. So I had a pretty good understanding of what was needed, particularly when I was doing the Patan and the, and the Akka. I don't know if that answers the question really. Yeah. But. So would you say that a good amount of that whole process was the research that you did before the arriving at the destination that was sort of key for you to make the, the most out of it? Or did part of your process involve being there and sort of doing it more intuitively? Or was it a, a balance of the two? Well, no, an interesting question because it's very much what I'm talking about in these lectures I'm giving around lectures, terrible word, these talks I'm giving around the States. Um, I'm giving one, in fact, this afternoon at Temple University in Philadelphia, and there'll be Parsons in New York. And it's about storytelling through photography, which is essentially the picture story, aka the photo essay. And planning and preparation is, is really important, but you must never, in the kind of work that I'm doing editorial, you know, long-term, long-distance editorial assignments get locked into the script. The picture script, of course, is that's the kind of, that's the practical vehicle uh, when you're doing, when you're prepping a, a story. And, and it comes from the briefing from the client, but then you start to make your notes and basically try and work up a list of the kinds of shots, the subjects, the way you might treat them, how much variety of treatment you need for any particular subject, and you build it up. It's never, it's never cast in stone. It's you know a, a, a continually changing menu, if you like. But basically, having done as much research as possible, then then you go and you put it kind of to one side at the back of your mind, and um then follow what happens because the one thing you do know from experience is that many of the best pictures you'll take touch wood are going to be coming up opportunistically serendipitous something just happens and you you take the opportunity so as much as anything you're preparing yourself to react to be able to react to situations and possibilities one of the big things that many photographers today sort of fixate on, particularly young photographers, is the importance of developing a a style by which they can sort of market themselves. They can hang their head on that and say, okay, this is my style and, 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 and my approach. It seems like you were not so preoccupied with that when you were starting out and that your sensibility in terms of what you do with the camera came out naturally as a result of just going out and producing the images. Is that a, a correct assessment, or was there other things going on that I may not be touching on? No, that's, that's absolutely true. I never really thought about that too much. Retrospectively, of course, style is important, in that if you're, ident if you're identifiable in what you do, and it's liked, of course, then you will naturally come to the minds of you know, picture editors or assignment, anyway, 
clients who are assigning as being suitable for that particular job. But at the time, I was simply trying to solve each problem, each visual problem as it came along without trying to impose something that I'd, I'd worked out. I don't think it's at all a good idea if you're at the start of anything of trying to think consciously about a style because you're too inexperienced. Whether you're talking about a writer, a painter, a photographer, if you just started, how can you, you don't have the experience to be able to do that sensibly. And the danger with trying to develop a style is that you end up with a mannerism, which is, you know, I mean, th that's not a good thing to have. Your your new book is uh, The Photographer's Vision, Understanding and Appreciating Great Photography. And in that book, you talk a lot about the work of great photographers and how to look at those images and be able to analyze and view them sort of critically rather than just simply appreciating the beauty of, of a given photograph. Talk to us about how these great photographers that are not only in the book, but that you've been looking at for the last several years, helped you develop your own eye as a photographer, especially given that you didn't have any, you know, quote unquote, formal training as a, as a photographer. Right. And this is interesting because this is the first book I've done where I'm illustrating it with the work of other photographers. And the rest of my books are illustrated with my photographs, not because I think they're the best, but because I know how I took them. Uh, so I can actually talk sensibly about, about them. One of the ways in which I learned photography, and you're right, it was an on-the-job training, as I used to look at photographs in magazines, on billboards. Um, I mean, not just photographs in books of photography, although I did that, but what was current. Uh, I mean, magazines were, you know, really important because there you were looking at the work of the best contemporary photographers minus fine art. But in those days, there wasn't really a, a developed fine art photography market as there is now. And I always recommend this to anyone, you know, just devour images. But, I mean, one's taken, particularly ones that are published, ones that have been commissioned, they've been assigned either by a magazine picture editor or the, or the ad agency, because among those, you will find the best contemporary work being done. But don't just take the word of other people for it. Sit and think about them yourself. I mean, I, I believe that if you, you can sit yourself in front of a photograph and if you look at it and think about it clearly enough and long enough, you can come to some decisions about not only do I like it and if so, why do I like it, but what motivated the photographer to do that? What was he solving? What imagination were they putting into it? And that's how I learned and, and this is a chance now, of course, in the photographer's vision to bring in, you know, to bring up some old favorites, you know, people I, uh, that I, I've always liked the work of, which is, a, I, I mean, it's a fairly traditional list, I have to tell you. I mean, obviously, Cartier-Bresson, I mean, the master. I mean, if you really look at his pictures, uh, all of them, you see just a unique way of working and that's why 
it's almost a cliche, isn't it? Um, but it's because it's so good. And he gave up a long time ago. <laughs> uh, he gave up before I, he gave up taking photographs before I started. Ernst Haas was another one because uh, I've always liked color. And I thought and still think that Haas is one of the, one of the great colorists, uh, despite the fact that he ended up sort of falling out of favor in the 70s, particularly in America, once uh, John Sarkovsky got into uh, MoMA. It, was the, it became the era of new color. But that's a whole other story. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, you make a great point about Aristotle there. When you're shooting for any given period of time, you can get into a rut. Especially yeah. if you're going out there and you're making images for clients whose assignments aren't necessarily challenging you creatively or aesthetically. Their, their demands are, are based on other considerations other than the more aesthetic ones in terms of what may be challenging you as a photographer. So how did you sort of maintain that level to your work and try to exceed it and create challenges for yourself so that you would you wouldn't stagnate so you wouldn't be one of those burnt photographers who's just mm. doing it for the sake of a paycheck first i'm lucky enough that i oh, i shouldn't say lucky but it doesn't sound lucky but i'm lucky enough that i i do pretty, i do what i like doing which is editorial photography i do I actually do very little commercial work and that's not because i don't need the money and it's very nice to get the occasional commercial job coming in. But you do have to expose yourself and, and, and work in a different way within that area of the industry. Editorial's rather different. So most of my clients actually are giving me the kind of assignments that, that I like doing. And in any case, I suppose I'd say I'm really photographing for myself. And I have my own sort of particular standards of, of what I'm satisfied with. So I'm not principally aiming to satisfy the client so much as turn in the best job possible. And quite often, you know, a, a client may not need all the energy you put into it. The point that you make about being able to create opportunities for you to do the kind of work that you want to do is probably the dream of many photographers. And and the reality is that the editorial market, both for magazines and other uses, is is, is just changing very rapidly. So it's how, declining. Yeah. So how do you sort of contend with that, with sustaining your the ability to be able to do that work that you do with a, with a fast-changing and brutal landscape that editorial photography is currently well i've been at it a long time uh, and that helps um so i don't need too many things these days i mean i have the roof over my head two things and they're related one is i've always liked books i like working I like, a book's a big thing it's i like its materiality it's permanence and the fact that if you're doing a, a book-sized photo essay, picture story, you've really got room to move and to explore and not just explore the place, the content, but visually. So it's really something to get your teeth into. So I've always done books and that's been kind of fortunate because now that the world of great magazine assignments of the kind that I do is fading rapidly. 
then I spend more time doing books. Uh, and the other thing is that I always work on a percentage, got royalties in other words. So the the royalties are a kind of income. They are an income. Yeah. And if you do enough books, but then, you know, I've done maybe too many books. One of the things that you, you, you do is, is you teach not only through your books, but it seems like you have done, you know, in-person like seminars or presentations, as you, as you mentioned before. But what are some of the things that you feel that the students who come to you really need to focus on? Because I know there's a lot of preoccupation with the technical side of things or how to price something or something and so forth. But tell us about what you think that are some of the really key things that people should be considering and focusing on if they want to make this a life for themselves. Yes. Um, there's too much on technical side. The business side, well, you do have to have that. You really do. And being a, a reasonably competent business person will make a big difference. But in a way, the advice is, I try not to give it negatively, but it's, it's a removal avoiding the this the obsession with with technicalities and of course i i'm as guilty as anyone in promoting this in my earlier books i've stepped right back from that because there are hundreds and hundreds of books and stuff done on it and the guys who are really into it do it best of all i mean it doesn't photography doesn't need me to start writing about about equipment and and software we all have to pay attention to it and professionals do of course but we don't obsess about it and you know buying the ne next bit of of gear is not going to make you a better photographer what what people need to f concentrate on is finding their ambition and enthusiasm within the area of photography in other words assuming that there's already a commitment there in in a student or even not a student somebody who you know wants to take up photography like i did to find which way of working they find the most exciting and are most enthusiastic about. And I don't mean to say that you've very quickly got to find a speciality, but you have to follow your heart in a way. I mean, follow what you personally enjoy doing because it's only with, with that kind of pleasure of making something creative that you stand a chance of doing good work. Yeah. One of the things that you touched on earlier was the idea of telling telling a story. And I think that one of the challenges for a lot of beginning photographers who want to do editorial or even commercial work is the importance of being able to tell a story with a series of images. And on your recent blog entry, you had an entry about the 3 plus 1 photo essay principle. And... Why don't you talk a little bit about that for people who, who don't know what that is and how they can use that to help them sort of flesh out what they're doing with the camera? Well, I, I have to say I, just, I, made, I made three plus one up, but, but what it refers to, just to make it sort of attempt to make it memorable, uh, but what it refers to is, is uh, universal and it's one of those things that's fairly obvious, but... Is quite often missed uh, the beginning. It, the three is um, in any story, in any photo essay, you have an opener, and at the back you've got a closer, 
and in between you have the body of the work. And somewhere within all of that, you have one or two key shots, the, you know, the most high-impact ones. So that's the one. And it's almost too simple. But it's important to realize that if you're telling a story in any medium whatsoever, the very first thing you have to do is grab the attention of your audience, whether it's a reader or a viewer or a listener. You've got to grab their attention with something strong and intriguing and make them turn the page or swipe the tablet page or click the right arrow. And then you have a body which has to have a progression and pacing because it gets more complicated once you start looking at it. And by pacing, it means you have highs and lows. And in order to have highs, like the best shots, the, the, the real attention getters, um, they've always got to be preceded by something not quite so high. Not everything can be great. And you have to close. In other words, you've been telling a story and you have to come back with a conclusion, a, a full stop, which in the case of a photo essay is traditionally a strong image that summarizes or shows the end of what you've been talking about. How do you get through that process when you say you're, you're at a destination and you're creating images? Is part of your process sort of assessing the shots that you've made during that day and realizing that you've there are certain holes or do you completely wait until after you're done? So I understand that process after you're looking at the images, but how do you ensure that you have those images when you're out there in the field for two days, three days, or two weeks, or whatever amount of time that you have available to you? That comes back to the picture script. That's what the picture script is for. And you keep working on it, striking some things out, changing, adding. And, and yeah, I think about it all the time. At the end of the day, and throughout the whole thing, I'm going back in my mind and thinking, well, you know, where would this go? How is it looking? And particularly because I do books, and the latest one, I'm not, I'm not talking about books about photography, but books of photographs. The latest one, which came out early this year, called The T-Horse Road, is a three-kilo monster, 300 pages. And I spent two years on this, uh, six trips to China and Tibet, because it's a, it's a journey story that covers more than 3,000 kilometers from the far southwest of China up onto uh, the Tibetan Plateau. So I'm all the time trying to place things in my mind and see how it might work and what the rhythm will be. What do I need to go here? What the shot I just took, does it have a place? Even I mean, it might not. You might have shot something that just doesn't seem right for the book because you were there. And so I'm going through this process all the time. I mean, I like composing in my head the final result. And tell us a little more about the this T-Horse Road project, because I see some amazing images on your site revolving that. How, tell us about the decision to focus on this for a period of time and, to, and the decision to come out in the form of a book. Okay. I did this with a publisher with whom I've worked quite a lot before and is now an old friend. And she originally commissioned me years ago to do some books on Thailand. After I'd done the Time Life 
book on the air car, I'd you know I got to know Thailand pretty well, and um, so it was my base for traveling. Uh, I never lived there, but I'd 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 go there, and I you know I learned to speak Thai and uh, a lot of Thai friends. So with Narissa, my publisher, we did books on Thailand, and then I introduced her to Angkor and Cambodia, and we did more books on those. And it was like three years ago, and we were having dinner, and she said, you know, we haven't done any work together. Why don't we, why don't we do another book together? And I said, yeah, great. Uh, she said, look, I'm really, I'm getting bored with Cambodia and, and all of that. I want to break out from Southeast Asia. And I was thinking of China, but I want something that, I don't know, has some, has some connection, either because it's nearby or some linkages with Southeast Asia. Why don't you look look around and find a you know come up with a subject? So I just I did that kind of work. I looked around, came up with some other ideas, and then came across this thing, uh, the Tea Horse Road, which is like the Silk Road. It started in the seventh century, and the best thing of all was that hardly anyone in the West knew about it, whereas all Chinese know about it because they taught it at school. And it was great. So it had, it had lots going for it in terms of a rich mixture of subjects, ethnobotany, tea itself, very interesting. Culture, politics, uh, history, amazing physical landscapes. So it just seemed a natural. So we did it. Well, those are some beautiful images that you have on that site there. So I encourage people to check it out as well as some of the other work that you have there. Well, my final question that I always ask my guests is that I ask them to suggest or recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would one photographer be for you and why? It would be right now, and he's a dead photographer, and I hope I pronounced the name right because he was Hungarian, Martin Munkacsi. That's M-U-N-K-A-C-S-I. So I'm not sure if I got the pronunciation right. One of the, there was a group, well, they didn't work as a group, but there was a period of time in the 20s and 30s when Hungary produced some amazing photographers, including Kertes, Robert Kappa, and many more. Munkachi was fantastic. He invented, shall we say, live-action fashion photography. And you'll find words of praise about him from people like Avedon. Cartier-Bresson identifies one of Munkachi's pictures that he took while he was on assignment in West Africa, but it was something just happening to the side of a group of boys running into the surf from the beach. Uh, Cartier-Bresson identified that as the picture that inspired him to take up a camera. Uh, you can't get better than that. And of course, I include it, it's a great favorite of mine, in in the book, The Photographer's Vision. Yeah, that's a fantastic, fantastic photograph. He, he moved, as did a number of Hungarians before the war, the Second War, to America. And he had an amazingly successful career as a fashion photographer here. Very influential. Yeah, that's an awesome, awesome suggestion. But Thank you again, Michael, for appearing on the show. It was uh, an honor and a pleasure to, to finally have the chance to sit down and talk with you. No, the pleasure was mine. Thank you. 
Thanks for joining me, and I suggest you check out some of Michael's books, as well as his new Photographer's Eye app, now available on both the Android and iOS operating systems. If you have any questions or comments, email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Google+. The editor for this episode is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. And this is Ibarian X. Perello, and this is The Candid Frame.